Good morning. Would you uh, bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity to look into your word. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us very clearly and help us to make the application to our lives in the middle of uh, these uh, days that we face, which are very trying, difficult at times, but exciting as well. Our eyes are fixed on you, Lord, and we wait with eager expectation to see what you're going to do, and we look to your soon return. And so, Father, now we give ourselves to you, and we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this word. I pray in Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Well, on our journey down the yellow brick road, a journey, I may remind you, that grows more dangerous with every step that she takes, Dorothy meets a number of strange sights. She befriends the scarecrow, and later the two of them come upon a lumberjack made of tin. Standing utterly still in the forest, his axe frozen in midair. And at first he seems unable to speak, but upon coming closer, they discover that he's actually trying to say something after all, and if you remember the scene, you can hear the voice, oil can. He's trying to say oil can. And after a bit more misunderstanding and misinterpretation, they, they get the oil can and uh, they put the, to the joints of his mouth only to find out that he can speak as well as any other man, but that he was rusted. Once he's freed from his prison, he begins to tell them his story. Now, the movie left out a very crucial point, which the author gave in his original fairy tale. The Tin Woodman had once been a real man who had been in love with a beautiful maiden. It was his dream to marry her once he could earn enough money to build them a cottage in the woods. The Wicked Witch hated his love, and she cast spells upon that man that caused him injury so that one by one, his limbs needed to be replaced with artificial ones made of tin. At first, it seemed an advantage, for his metal frame allowed him to work and uh, nearly as powerfully as a machine. With a heart of love and arms that never tired, he seemed sure to win. I thought I had beaten the wicked witch then, he said, and I worked harder than ever. But I little knew how cruel my enemy could be. She thought of a new way to kill my love for the beautiful munchkin maiden and made my axe slip again so that it cut right through my body, splitting it into two halves. Once more, the tinner came to my help and made me a body of tin, fastening my tin arms and legs and head to it by means of joints so that I could move around as well as ever. But alas, I now had no heart so that I lost all my love for the munchkin girl and did not care whether I married her or not. He continues, My body shone so brightly in the sun that I felt very proud of it, and it did not matter now if my axe slipped, for it could not cut me anymore. There was only one danger, that my joints would rust. But I kept an oil can in the cottage and took care to oil myself whenever I needed it. However, there came a day when I forgot to do this, and being caught in a rainstorm before I had thought of the danger my joints had rusted and I was left to stand in the woods until you came to help me. It was a terrible thing to undergo, but during the year I stood there, I had time to think that the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. While I was in love, I was the happiest man on earth, but no one can love who has not a heart, and so I am resolved to ask Oz to give me one. If he does, I will go back to the munchkin maiden and marry her. Both Dorothy and the scarecrow had been greatly interested in the story of the tin woodman, and now they knew why he was so anxious to get a new heart. All the same, said the scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart. For a fool would not know what to do with a heart if he had one. I shall take the heart, returned the woodman. For brains do not make one happy, and happiness is the best thing in the world. 
Well, now, John Eldridge taught me something about the Tin Woodman's character in his stirring book, Waking the Dead. I've watched The Wizard of Oz a myriad of times, probably you have too, since I was young enough to know what a TV was. And yet I never, ever knew the background of the Woodman's story. John Eldridge also reminded me of something else that I tend to forget and fail to pay close enough attention to that no matter how many times I've read it in the scriptures, I still forget it. Notice, there was a man who was once real and alive and in love, Eldridge says, but after a series of blow, his humanity was reduced to efficiency. He became a sort of machine, a hollow man. At first, he did not even notice this, for his condition made him an excellent woodman, as any person can become productive like a machine when he foregoes his heart. Notice also that it was the wicked witch who brought the disaster upon him. Baum's mythic tale reminds us that the enemy knows how vital the heart is, even if we do not, and all of his forces are fixed upon its destruction. For if he can disable or deaden your heart, then he has effectively foiled the plan of God, which was to create a world where love reigns. By taking out your heart, the enemy takes out you, and you are essential to the story. We too, if we've been a Christ follower for any length of time, have likely suffered a series of blows over time. And right now, this coronavirus pandemic is a blow like none you and I have ever encountered in our lifetime. And because of it, we can easily seize upon things like efficiency. In other words, what's the best way to do church or Bible study from home? Or we can seize upon busyness, trying to stay active, occupied, moving instead of practicing the discipline of slowing and listening. And we can seize even upon productivity. That's the typical American way of doing something. As the life we will live instead, right? That is true in our personal lives as well as in the life of the church because we can get off course. We can find ourselves in the woods. We can rust. We can become dazed and almost unable to move, sleepwalking through life and ministry. We can lose heart. And this is the very thing the enemy wants to happen. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to restore your heart and mind and so that we might have life, life in all of its fullness, even in the midst of crisis. Arrhenius said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. The actual quote is, life in man is the glory of God. The life of man is the vision of God. But of course, as Eldridge observes, the opposite cannot also be true. The glory of God is certainly not a man barely making it, a person that's hardly alive. How can it bring God glory for his very image, his own children, to remain so badly marred, broken, and captive? The answer is simple. It can't. In fact, at the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, he stepped onto the scene and proclaimed that it was his express mission to reverse that diminished state of our hearts by fulfilling words which Isaiah predicted about him seven centuries before. In Isaiah chapter 61, in verses 1 to 3, we read these words that Jesus quoted. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, 
So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. When I read this passage of scripture, I hear in the back of my mind the sad sound of a wailing harmonica playing the blues. So I agree with the author when he writes, this is the last thing the enemy wants you to know. The enemy's plan from the beginning was to assault the heart, just as the wicked witch did to the tin woodman. Make them so busy they ignore their heart, says the enemy. Wound them so deeply they don't want a heart. Twist their theology so they despise the heart. Take away their courage. Destroy their creativity. Make intimacy with God impossible for them. And of course, your heart would be the object of a great and fierce battle. It is your most precious possession. Without your heart, you cannot have God. Without your heart, you cannot have love. Without your heart, you cannot have faith. Without your heart, you cannot find the work that you were meant to do. In other words, without your heart, you cannot have life. This begs a huge question. Did Jesus mean what he said? That he came so that we might have life and that more abundantly? Friends, I'm not talking about health and wealth kind of life. I'm talking about a life that makes an impact for eternity. Life that is deep, life that is settled, life that is at peace with God and with self and with other people. Life that transcends the shallow, superficial mirage that this culture sucks us into and leaves us empty, unsatisfied, famished, thirsting, and always wanting. That is precisely what Jesus came to rectify our hearts. But do not be mistaken. Unless we continually immerse ourselves in him, we are in danger of losing our edge, losing our focus, losing our joy, and our resolve to endure. Let me ask you this. Where is your heart today? Whose is your heart today? Right at this moment, Friends, the spiritual battle is waged in the mind. We must discipline it and capture it for Christ, says 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. All the enemy has to do is to create a single channel of doubt, a solitary line of questioning about our conviction, and he has succeeded in diverting us from the work God is trying to do in us. But today, I want to tell you that the mind and the heart are inextricably connected to one another. When we begin to lose heart, the work wanes. And that is why the New Testament is filled with the repeated exhortation to not lose heart. And right now and next week, I want to simply touch briefly on seven of those exhortations. Not exhaustively, mind you, because it can get pretty exhausting listening to me ramble, but teasingly, so to speak, just enough to motivate and encourage you to continue running this race, even in the midst of these trying times, fighting the good fight of faith, and to not lose heart. Because, friends, here's the deal. The completion of our service for Christ tomorrow is determined by the commitments we make to Christ today. And that is especially true as we weather this current global and personal storm that we're in for as long as it takes. So what I share with you right now from the Word of God is not simply for such a time as this, but it is for all of life, coronavirus or not. And so the first thing the first place that we find these words of not losing heart that I want to point out is in Luke chapter 18. And here's the point. We need to stay connected if we're not going to lose heart. Stay connected. Pray continually. Luke 18, 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show 
that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. So here's this parable that Jesus told, and it tells, and he contrasts between an unrighteous judge, the original no-fear caricature, he did not fear God or man, Jesus points out, and the righteous widow. And now the tendency is to think that Jesus in this parable is teaching that if we continually pound on God's door, that he will eventually relent and grant our request because we're becoming annoying to him. We're wearing him out with our prayers. But the exact opposite is true in this context. Jesus is not picturing a one-to-one -one comparison here. He's setting up the ultimate contrast. Our Father is not an unrighteous judge who tires of our constant requests. No, on the contrary, He is a lovesick Father who wants us to stay connected with Him. He is a righteous judge that sometimes allows our requests to go unanswered in the way that we desire so that His perfect will will come to pass and that we will be changed so that our will might come into alignment with his will, so that we will become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, who said at the most critical juncture of his life and ours, yet not my will, but yours be done. Look at Luke 18, verses 6 to 8. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? That's a good question, will he? Will he find us faithful? During this storm? We're so much like the disciples who when Jesus asked them to continue in prayer with him, what did they do? They fell asleep. The spirit is so willing, but the flesh is so weak. Isn't that right? We get so tired of waiting for things to change that we drift off. But in the process, we miss the opportunity for our hearts to be changed. We're not patient people. We're not practiced at waiting. Pastor and author John Ortberg says that, quote, we tend to be a horn-honking, microwaving, FedEx mailing, fast food eating, express lane shopping hurry. We're always in a hurry. In a book entitled The Geography of Time, Robert Levine suggests the creation of a new unit of time, which he calls the honkosecond. He claims that it's the smallest measure of time known to science. What is the honkosecond? It is the time between when the light changes and the person behind you honks his horn. Let me ask you, how well do you wait? Because God sometimes wants us to wait. He doesn't move at our frantic pace. As one man said, we are often double espresso followers of a decaf sovereign. Instead of elaborating, let me give a litany of provocative and profound statements about waiting on God I've distilled from some other people. Listen to these quotes. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Lewis Smead said that. What God does in us while we wait, is as important as what it is we are waiting for, said Ben Patterson. Waiting is not just something we have to do while we get what we want. It is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. 
Too often we want God's resources, but we do not want his timing. Waiting on the Lord is a confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and sometimes painful clinging to God. Waiting on the Lord is the continual daily decision to say, I will trust you, I will obey you, even though the circumstances of my life are not turning out the way that I want them to and may never turn out the way that I will choose. I'm betting everything on you, God. I have no other plan. I have no plan B. Waiting is a good thing. It reminds me that I am not in charge, says John Ortberg. Waiting humbles me in ways that I need to be humbled. In the real issues of life, we're not just waiting around, we're waiting on God. Therefore, we can wait with confidence because waiting reminds us that we are waiting for someone. And the single most important activity in waiting is prayer. Are you finding yourself praying more right now? As we wait for these mandates and these stay-at-home mandates to be lifted, you should be praying. We should all be praying. Maybe God is doing this to get us in a place where we are quiet enough to listen to him and to intercede on others' behalf. Don't be too quick to want to be out of that spot that God is placing us in. I love the poignant lesson that Ben Patterson told years ago about a lesson he learned about God's sovereignty in prayer in this regard. It came by way of two ruptured lumbar discs. The doctor prescribed six weeks of total rest. The horrible pain prevented me, he said, from lying in bed, and those weeks were spent on my back on the floor. My eyes didn't focus well due to the painkillers and muscle relaxants so I could scarcely read. I was of no use, he says, to the church, I thought. So I asked my wife to bring me the pictorial directory of our church and I decided to pray for every single member every single day. It took me nearly two hours but this was no great piety, mind you. Mainly I was bored and frustrated so I prayed, but toward the end of my convalescence, he said, I said to the Lord, you know, Lord, these times of prayer have become so sweet. It's too bad I don't have time to do this when I'm at work. Stupid, the Lord replied pleasantly. You have the same 24 hours each day when you're well. The trouble with you, Ben, the Lord said, is when you're well, you think you're in charge. When you're sick, you know you're not. Does that strike a chord with us right now? Prayer allows us to wait without worry. And worry causes us to lose heart. Therefore, stay connected. Pray continually. Secondly, the way we don't lose heart is to stay calibrated. Preach boldly. Stay calibrated. Preach boldly. In your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to stay here for a little bit of time. But I want to read the first seven verses to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases the first few verses of this passage in the message. Since God has so generously let us in on what he's doing, we're not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into an occasional hard time. We refuse to wear masks and play games. We don't maneuver and manipulate behind the scenes. We don't twist God's word to suit ourselves. Rather, we keep everything we do and say out in the open, the whole truth on display, so that those who want to can see and judge for themselves in the presence of God. The King James Version, translating verse 1, uses the phrase, we faint not. Literally, it means to behave badly in, to give in to evil, to lose courage. The fact is, Paul was overwhelmed with the thought that God had chosen him for this ministry and had given him the privilege of carrying on this amazingly good news to people, carrying it out to people and preaching it to them. He was always amazed about that. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me the strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious the Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Jesus Christ. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All glory and honor to God forever and ever, he says. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Now, Paul recognized that that it was only by God's mercy that he could proclaim such a message as the gospel. He valued it so highly and treasured it so deeply that he was driven to endure whatever may come for the sake of Christ. He would not lose heart. He could not lose heart. Even though he was being accused by his critics of using the gospel to manipulate and control people for his own ends, of magnifying his own office, Paul refused to be dissuaded or distracted from preaching the gospel. And let me tell you, that kind of criticism can be extremely wearying on someone whose sincere desire is to get the word of God into the hearts and souls of people. Ravi Zacharias tells this story about revival. He says there's an old cartoon quip from the famed series Born Loser featuring its central character, Brutus Thornapple. He's lying by a beach in his polka dot trunks with his hands behind his head, his midsection rather protrusive, a couple of curly gray hairs sprouting from his chest, basking in the sunshine in sheer delight. And he turns to the stranger lying on the beach next to him in similar abandon, And he says, quote, I managed this vacation because of a fire insurance claim of $20,000 that I received on my house. The stranger says, same here, only mine was $40,000, a reimbursement on flood insurance claim. The third frame shows a terribly outdone Brutus leaning forward in utter consternation saying, tell me, how does one start a flood? Zacharias says, I I think of that every now and then, and and when I drive past a small church near our home that features a sign twice a year, it says on the sign, Revival Next Weekend. One of these times, he says, I'm planning to drop in and see what that's all about. How does one start a revival, we might well ask. No, we don't start revivals. We pray and we labor and love in God's way and in God's time, the flood of his blessing moves in. We just stand in awe of God who does what he does when he wants to do it. 
And it's for that reason that Paul comes clean and renounces all the deception and shameful means to manipulate people. He refused to distort the word of truth and determined to deliver it plainly and accurately, the whole truth on display, as the message puts it, and let the power of God do his work. And that, I submit to you, that's what we should be doing. Maybe that's why God has stripped it all down so that the basic gospel will come out for people. So let me ask you a question. Is what Paul says here descriptive of your life, of mine? Or of what's going on right now? The whole truth on display? Nothing crafty, nothing manipulative, nothing self-focused. The only way to not lose heart in this fight of faith is to stake your claim on the truth of this word and its power to change lives. Personal opinions and preferences will not stand up in the final hour. Heartwarming stories and clever imagery on the screen or on your Facebook post may set the stage for people to be moved closer to God. But it is only the Spirit of God and the rock-solid reliability of God's eternal revelation that can forever transform a person's soul. You can't do it and I can't do it. And when his word is proclaimed boldly and without human embellishment, God is the one who is glorified in all of it. And it is his power which is made manifest and enables us to endure. Verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you, he says. So the Bible says if we're not going to lose heart, we need to first stay connected and pray continually. Secondly, stay calibrated and preach boldly. And thirdly, we need to stay concentrated. In other words, perceive things clearly and hope continually. That's in verses 16 through 18 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me read it to you. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Let me ask you, is your inner man being renewed day by day through all of this? Are you just getting so sick and tired of being in your house and quiet and not running around like a chicken with your head cut off in your, like your normal life used to be? that you can't take it anymore, and you're starting to get stir-crazy. Is your inner man being renewed? Are you taking the time to renew it? Paul says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, or the things which are seen are temporal. This is temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Here is the real picture. If we want to keep our hearts intact and from rusting away, we must keep a heavenly perspective on life. We must realize that the suffering that we endure here today, outwardly, when weighed against the bliss we will enjoy in eternity, is absolutely nothing by comparison. And that is an extremely difficult concept to remind ourselves of in the middle of what seems like an endless winter. And that's what it seems like right now to some people. And spiritual winter is exactly what it feels like when the fire begins to go out in your heart. 
Let me ask you, how do you feel about winter? That's kind of a dumb question. We live in Maine. But I've noticed more and more people in Maine who dislike it immensely the older that they get. I read once that there is no mention of winter in the Bible before the fall of man. And there isn't. The author went on to point out that, quote, in Genesis we read about trees bursting with fruit and rivers flowing with water and people who didn't even need clothes, unquote. Well, wherever the Garden of Eden was, it clearly was not winter there. It certainly wasn't like Fayette in January. The Bible indicates that winter came because someone did something very wrong and people have been paying for it ever since. Friends, you may relocate yourself to some part of the world to avoid the cold weather, as one man says, but there is no place that you can move to escape spiritual winter. This social distancing thing and isolation thing is getting old fast, isn't it? It's starting to feel like a long, cold, lonely winter. And as someone rightly said, we need a way to hold on to God when it feels as if God has let go of us. Spiritual winter, pain, suffering, and the coronavirus pandemic were certainly not part of God's original desire and plan for us. I think he hates it as much as we do. But he can redeem all of it and use it for good in your life. Unless we forget, a day is coming when he will wipe every tear from every eye. We eagerly wait for that day. And when it comes... Whatever you and I suffer today will fade in comparison to the glory we will experience then. Someone once said that the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Let me say that again. The biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. In spiritual winter, we get very clear about us not being God. We're really clear on that right now, aren't we? This pandemic makes us realize who is who and just who is calling the shots. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 24 and 25, we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So let me ask you, what is your hope? Someone has said that hope is hearing the melody of the future, faith is to dance to it. Well, the writer of Hebrews put it like this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen or the conviction of things not seen in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Or as the New Living Translation renders it, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. Your salvation, if you have received Christ, is a fact so are you dancing to that? Even now? The Bible says we are agents of his kingdom, ambassadors for Christ. As Pat Morley puts it, we bring life where there is death, light where there is darkness, hope where there is despair. And the problem, of course, is that we are all subject to the daily aches and pains of living in a world held hostage by sin. Yet if we, his ambassadors, appear without hope, there can be no hope. What message do you send to people? What message are you sending to people right now? We are ambassadors of the kingdom, not pallbearers of the kingdom, he said. Now, sure, there is undeniable tension and an unrelenting tyranny in this life. And especially now, we see people starting to heat up and taking sides and being polarized as to whether we or not we should follow the, the mandates that are being handed down. 
We're all in travail right now until Christ arrives. And we feel that deeply, especially right now. But we have the incomparable truth of an unequaled treasure. What we feel now, says Philip Yancey, we will not always feel. Our disappointment is itself a sign, an aching, a hunger for something better. And faith is, in the end, a kind of homesickness for a home we have never visited but have never stopped longing for. That's why the scripture repeats itself time and time again. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't lose heart. Stay connected. Pray continually. Stay calibrated. Preach boldly. Stay concentrated. Hope continually. And then fourth, stay compassionate. Stay compassionate. Give selflessly. I'm going to find that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Galatians 6 verse 9, Paul writes again, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Long story short, Stay engaged by helping others for the sake of Christ. Whether it includes financial or physical or spiritual or practical service for others, when we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto others, we tend to become energized and a lot less apt to whine. Many times our loss of heart is not due to spiritual weariness but spiritual laziness. We become weary from doing nothing rather than from doing good or from constantly serving our own agenda, which deep down translates into serving myself rather than being open to following God's agenda, which often may seem more like an interruption to us. This is tough to admit, but it's absolutely true. I don't know about you, but I battle with this in my own heart at times. Don't you? I can convince myself that I'm doing a lot of serving in all of this. Preparing messages, overseeing ministry, trying to make sure that online services happen, online Zoom meetings, blah, 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 right? But the fact is sometimes the best ministry of service that I can practice is what one author calls the ministry of availability or the ministry of being interrupted, In the Russian church, certain people called Pustiniki would devote themselves to a life of prayer. They would withdraw to the desert, Pustinia, and live in solitude, but not in isolation. The Russian word for solitude, get this, means, quote, being with everybody. Interesting. By custom, the latch, quote, was always off the door, unquote, as a sign of availability, according to Tilden Edwards. The Pustinic's priority at any time was his neighbor's need, which might stretch beyond prayer and counsel to physical labor, as at harvest time. Sometimes in our work, we must be interruptible for tasks that are not on our agenda. Sometimes, we must live with a latch off the door. Sometimes we need to be available to talk or to pray with troubled people, people whom we will not be able to cure and who can't contribute to our career success. So that I can practice this, one writer says, I occasionally will set a day off to be at home, to be a, a day of secret service, so to speak, when I'm simply available to my family and have no agenda of projects or tasks of my own. The idea is that when my only task is to be available, it is impossible to be interrupted. The goal of the day is simply to serve. But he says it's always humbling to see how quickly my need to create my own personal agenda arises. And he points out, you know, that Jesus took a little child in his arms and he said, in effect, here's your ministry. Give yourself to those who can bring you no status, no clout. Just 
help people. You need this little child. You need to help this little child, not just for her sake, but more for your sake. For if you don't, your whole life will be thrown away on an idiotic contest to see who is the greatest. But if you serve her often and well, cheerfully and out of the limelight, then the day may come when you do it without thinking, oh, what a wonderful thing I've done. Then you will begin to serve naturally, effortlessly, just for the joy of it. Then you will begin to understand how life in the kingdom works, he says. So Paul says, stay compassionate. Give yourself selflessly. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7, 8, and 9 say, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow. Weary. I want to close with just a couple of excerpts. Some years ago now, many years ago, as a matter of fact, when I first started uh, as a pastor here, uh, this couple went on the mission field overseas to China and then moved on to different places over there. But um, just a few years ago now, um, they sent a letter and, and they were struggling at that time, especially the wife. She writes, I've been wanting to share my heart with you for a while. I've been talking with the Lord about life here, about the isolation I feel so much of the time, about the struggles of life. And I was thinking that all of you, the ones of you who care about us and pray for us, you hear the other side of our lives here. And true, the true and accurate side of God's work in and through us, but not the side that takes a toil on us. At times, she says, the battles are very strong, so very strong. The battle for the heart. There are things that constantly attack the heart, the very thing God wants alive. I have found this to be the key thing that the Lord says to protect in Proverbs 4, 23 is one of my theme scriptures. Above all else, protect your heart for it is the wellspring of life. I see that if I give into the things that wound my heart without dealing with it directly and honestly with the, with the Lord, there are parts of my heart that want so much to become hard and calloused. But I know that if that happens, there is a part of me that dies and can no longer love. And the greatest commandment is all about love. And so is the second greatest commandment. Ah, the effort it takes to stay alive, to fight for truth, sometimes I think I will split open how strong the lies are at times and how it has defeated me too many times, way too many times. There are times the attack is so real, it was like I felt the enemy's talons in my throat, not wanting to let go. There are times I just want to faint. But in and through so many of different kinds of struggle, the Lord is revealing himself in ways that he never could have without them. That truly, he is answering the inner cries of my heart, and that is to know and to follow him and to be his instrument of unconditional love. He has a long way to go to change this life to be unconditional, but I want to testify that if he hadn't ripped my feet out from under me, I could never have seen some of the things that were in my life that would defeat me as a Christian. So, my friends, it has been hard. Some of the difficulty I knew at times was because the enemy wanted to take me out. Satan hates what God is doing here and wants us out of the picture. Life often looks a lot different than I thought it would. I'm learning to accept that and trust God in that. My aim is to follow the will of God, to know it and to obey, even when I am not happy, even when everything around me is tough. I can trust him with my life that he will shape it and use it for his glory. Oh, how I get so sick of thinking about me and how much I want to be thinking about him who saved me and picked me up out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. The salvation of my soul should be enough for me to be grateful for the rest of my life. Why is it so hard to remain grateful, trusting him and him alone and not worry that my life should be more? 
Dear friends, please know that we truly cherish your prayers. And you have to know that every time you have been led to pray for us and the work over here, it has changed things in the heavens and it has given us the strength and the grace to keep following the one we love and follow. We need each other to make the work of God complete. We work together. Please never forget that. We share in what God is doing here and throughout the earth. And please know that every time you think about us and encourage us, it has meant the world. Thank you a million times. Again, I wanted to share this with you so you know that we, just like you, have hard things to face and work through. That every day and sometimes every moment, we have to choose to follow the Lord and not the lies of our flesh. Ellen's letter reflects the battle for our hearts that many of us may feel right now, and the one I described at the beginning of this message through the words of John Eldridge. Let me repeat them by way of reminder. Of course your heart would be the object of a great and fierce battle. It is your most precious possession. Because without your heart, you cannot have God. Without your heart, you cannot have love. Without your heart, you cannot have faith. Without your heart, you cannot find the work that you were meant to do. In other words, without your heart, you cannot have life. So, as Solomon wisely counseled, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Stay connected and pray continually. Stay calibrated, preach boldly. Stay concentrated, hope continually. And stay compassionate, give selflessly. And next week we'll see a few more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these wonderful words of truth and especially for how you care for us through the body of Christ. Father, I pray if there's anyone hurting right now that they would recognize and realize that there are brothers and sisters all throughout the body that are probably praying for them and uplifting them. Maybe anonymously, but nevertheless, we pray. And if there's someone that needs prayer, Lord God, I pray that they would make that need known. But that they would look to you and that you would comfort them, inspire them, energize them, and let them know that they are not alone. Let them not lose heart. Let them not grow weary in well-doing. Let them reap the benefits, Lord God, of what the Spirit is pouring forth into them, even now as we pray. For I ask it in the precious name of Christ, keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen.